Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Good evening, everybody. We begin the readout tonight with the remaining unknown unknowns about January 6th, namely what exactly our disgraced former president was doing as the attack on the Capitol unfolded, besides gleefully watching it on TV. We learned today that White House records obtained by the January 6th committee do not include any phone calls during an hours long period following Trump's speech from the ellipse, calling on his MAGA mob to march on the Capitol. The committee knows there were actually many calls that took place between Trump and his underlings during that time. There are just no White House records, which there should be. The records that were handed over include only calls that would have come through the White House switchboard. And Trump reportedly frequently used his cell phone instead, despite that being a massive security issue. But there's one call in particular that seems like it would have had to have been included in the White House records if they are indeed complete. Utah Senator Mike Lee told the Deseret News that during the insurrection, his cell phone rang and caller ID showed that the call originated from the White House. It was the president who had meant to call Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville to request that he keep objecting to the election results. Lee passed the phone to Tuberville, who informed the president that Pence had just been evacuated from the chamber, which, of course, didn't stop Trump from attacking Pence anyway on Twitter a few minutes later. Assuming Lee wasn't fabricating that detail, that call appears to be missing from the log. We also know that in a call where they were screaming at each other, Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, told Trump that he needed to call off the goons. Trump's response reportedly was, well, Kevin, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are. But we don't know which phone Trump used to do that. CNN reports that the committee has not requested Trump's personal phone records, but the chair, Benny Thompson, told them that that could be revisited. The committee also doesn't know if they've received a full account of the records or if any have been altered. But this gap in calls is definitely raising red flags on top of the cornucopia of evidence of Trump's pervasive disregard for the law. The House Oversight Committee announced today that they are investigating the 15 boxes of presidential records that the National Archives recovered from Mar-a-Lago. And late this afternoon, The Washington Post reported that some of those documents are clearly marked as classified, including documents at the top secret level. The Post notes that the top secret classification is applied to information where unauthorized disclosure could be expected to cause exceptionally grave damage to the national security. The National Archives has asked the DOJ to investigate Trump's handling of those records. We've also learned over the last few weeks about some of the, uh, let's say, more creative ways that Trump used to dispose of his documents, tearing up some of them and even eating them. But it reached a whole new level today. Axios obtained an excerpt from New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman's new book, in which she reports that while Trump was in office, staff in the White House residence periodically discovered wads of printed paper clogging a toilet and believed the president had tried to flush them. You literally cannot make this stuff up. Now, of course, Trump has called this categorically untrue, but not for nothing. He did have quite an obsession 
with the way that toilets flush. I mean, like for years. I won't use the example of toilets because it's sort of gross, right? But let's use it anyway. So no water comes out. So people are flushing it seven, eight, 10, 12 times. The end result is it's no good. 10 times, right? 10 times. Wow, Bob, not me, of course, not me. Dishwashers, sinks, toilets, light bulbs. But sinks, toilets, and showers. You don't get any water. You turn on the faucet, you don't get any water. People are flushing toilets 10 times, 15 times, as opposed to once. They end up using more water. As David Frum tweeted, as so often happened in the Trump years, blatantly criminal intent has joined to comically inept execution. Joining me now, former assistant U.S. attorney Maya Wiley and former RNC chair Michael Steele. Uh, this is getting weirder and weirder and weirder, Maya. Um, it is obviously illegal to secret documents from the White House. They're supposed to go to the National Archives when someone is no longer president. They don't just go to your house. You're not supposed to flush them down the toilet of the residents. You're not supposed to eat them. But it seems that Trump did them all, like put them in burn bags. It, it's, it's almost like a sort of comical mob movie. But it, as funny as it is and his like obsession with how toilets flush, it makes you wonder if he's obsessed how they flush because he was flushing things down the toilet that were supposed to be sent to the archives. Your thoughts. I don't even know what to say about this. <laughs> Not only is this potentially a crime because of his obligation uh, to send historically important material over to the archives, and that is what the statute says, uh, 15 boxes, it becomes very difficult to believe it was not intentional when, if the reporting is true, that lawyers told him he had this obligation under the, under the act. Right. Because one defense would be he didn't know if he didn't know of his legal obligations, he's not guilty of violating. Anything. But we're hearing that he was explicitly told. And in fact, that staffers, when they thought if, if Maggie Haberman's right in her book, that that she's hearing people believed him to be flushing them down the toilet. Uh, that is not sufficient evidence. I just want to make that clear alone for a prosecution. But it means there are witnesses that may have sufficient evidence. Certainly when you have boxes labeled classified, it is very difficult to argue that you didn't know you weren't supposed to take them home to Mar-a-Lago. And I think we're having some trouble with your microphone, Maya. But, I, you know, I'm going to go to Michael Steele because we're having a little trouble with your microphone. But and we're, we're going to get that fixed. But I mean, I am old enough to remember, Michael, the, the whole Hillary Clinton, but her email scandal started to be about at one point whether or not there was a C for classified on some of those documents that might have been on her private server. Right. And that became the subject of a criminal investigation. So you have that piece of it. And then you have the actually really alarming idea that Donald Trump may have been talking to people from the White House using a cell phone, which I remember these stories that ran years ago, back in 2018, there were all these stories about how insecure that is from a national security point of view. I mean, whatever yeah. you think of Donald Trump, at that point, he was president of the United States. You didn't want China yeah. or, or Russia or someone else to be able to listen into his calls, whatever he was doing on the phone. So the idea that he was using the most insecure possible method of communication, he might have been, he might as well have been WhatsApping people. 
You're the president of the United States. President Obama had to surrender his precious BlackBerry when he became president. What do you make of that combination of facts? Well, first, uh, could you pass the salt? I guess I just want to make sure y'all me. Y'all me. Just pass the salt, please. Excuse excuse me. (laughs) I'm stupid. I, I, I got nothing. Yeah, I got right, nothing. So first, and I can't I can't hear Michael Steele, but at this point it's pantomime and I don't even need sound. Because no, he, I, the I, demonstration that I just saw, it doesn't actually need words. I, I mean, th- those are your thoughts. Your thoughts make perfect just, sense. We're gonna now fix your I, audio and go back to Maya <laughs> Wiley. I mean maybe I, I paper is delicious. It was good. We are not following Michael out of that room though, are we? Because I'm not going with Michael wherever he's going next. <laughs> Can you, I don't can know. You hear me, Joy? Uh, I'm just going to let you both talk because I can't hear either one of you. So my, uh, go ahead, Michael, okay. your thoughts. All right. So just so to, to be serious for a moment, and I hope folks out there can can hear this. The, the, the fact of the matter is simply uh, we have known and seen this pattern of behavior going back uh, for quite some time uh, when they set up the Twitter account. Um, and and how that was used, the BlackBerry, uh, the fact that the president kept a private phone uh, that he that he would use to call world leaders. The fact that we know, as reported just today, that the president has admitted that he's still talking to Kim Jong Un right? in North Korea, yeah. president. So so you know the, the the idea of security is not something Trump has ever taken seriously. Um, and, and, and regard it with the same level of concern that you and I and certainly our government would have. So it's not surprising. Um, the, the other part of this, I think, that's even more telling, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, is that this information is now out there in the ether. And while we may not, to Maya's point, be able to uh, get Trump directly because of what he may or may not have been told, what he may or may not have known, there are people in his orbit who do and who yeah. were in the room. And he did advise the president at one point or another as to what was appropriate protocol and what was not. Now, as for Hillary Clinton and her emails, I don't want to hear another word, not a damn word from anybody talking about Hillary Clinton and national security and her server. Ever. Because Ever. after this, after this, some of you know who is sitting up there eating documents. Please. I mean, it, it does feel, Maya, and just to, to come back to you, because I wasn't able to hear you when you said it before. I mean, it does feel like the way that you would deal with like a drugs prosecution or somebody like flushing drugs down the toilet when like the cops roll in or, or or a mafia sort of situation where they're like eating documents to make sure that they never show up, you know, in, in prosecutors hands. It's so blatant that if I find it hard to believe that Trump would be able to argue he didn't know. Right. I mean, it's hard to grow up and be a a full adult in your 70s and not understand like the basics of protocol. I I can't imagine that he was never told that everything you write down, every tweet, all of it are are public communications from the president of the United States. You're not just some guy. You're the president. Like he had to have been told that. Is it a defense to say that a 72 year old man didn't know that he wasn't allowed to consume classified documents or flush them down the toilet. Well, I think you're making the right 
point here in your question, Joy, uh, because this is where I was going to go next. We're talking a lot about this as a violation of the Reporting Act. Michael very, very rightly raises the issue of national security uh, and the failure to protect it. But this is also potentially obstruction of justice. You know, shredding documents, destroying them, secreting them, like walking off with them and hiding them at home. Those are facts that can prove potentially obstruction of justice. You know, Donald Trump and obstruction of Congress. Donald Trump is going through two different impeachment processes, you know, over the course of his first and only term in office. Uh, so it could actually be a crime potentially under, you know, Congress's act to try to demonstrate whether or not he should be impeached. You know, these are very substantial allegations in more than one particular crime, because if, in fact, there are witnesses that can say, yes, he did eat documents, uh, or yes, we actually did tell him about the act and he took them anyway. The fact that they were classified, that the boxes were marked classified, very difficult then to assert that you didn't know you weren't supposed to take them. So the question is, uh, I actually, I don't even think it's a question. I don't think the committee has a choice but to subpoena not only his phone records, but also to subpoena Donald Trump himself. I think they have to do the same thing with uh, the former vice president, Pence, because again, some of those communications may have involved him. He has already come forward and said that, you know, what the president said was not true, that he didn't have the power to do uh, what the president was asking him. You know, what else uh, do yeah. we need to make sure uh, we know in terms of who is communicating yeah. with and how communicating? It's just time. And Mark Meadows, add Mark Meadows, as Michael, I mean, we're out of time, but, my, you know, Michael can tell you very well, having you know been in politics, your, your chief of staff knows everything. Your chief of staff tells you everything. Your chief of staff informs you of everything. If he was using private phones and flushing stuff, Mark Meadows also needs to answer some questions. because What was he telling him? Anything at all? Uh, Maya Wiley, Michael Steele, and I hope that paper was quite delicious. <laughs> Thank you was, very much, Michael. There's some salt, but it was good. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you know, in real life, you and you season in on that. Up next on of the readout, <laughs> their worst inflation in 40 years. But how much of it is legit? OK, this is important. How much of it is legit and how much of it is just good old fashioned price gouging? You don't want to miss that conversation. Also, inside the mind of Vladimir Putin, the headlines are scary. But how serious is the threat of war? Plus, it's time to burn what remains of the Confederacy down. I do believe the South will rise again. But this time, it'll be on our terms. Everybody's talking about his ads, but there are a lot of other reasons to be paying attention to Senate candidate Gary Chambers. He joins me tonight. And later, we pop the bubble on all this nonsense out there about the government handing out free crack pipes. Come on, y'all. The readout continues after this. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, 
then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. When can Americans expect some relief from this soaring inflation? According to Nobel laureates, 14 of them that contacted me and a number of corporate leaders, it's ought to be able to start to taper off as we go through this year. That was President Biden in an exclusive interview with NBC's Lester Holt tonight, arguing inflation is not here to stay. Okay, so let's talk a little economics 101, shall we? Now, don't worry, it's going to be fine. Okay, so let's just say you have a global pandemic. And you and everyone else in the world is basically stuck at home. And the workforce that can't stay home is hit really hard by sickness and worse. And so you have fewer people on the production lines to make things and ship things and work the sales clerk station and in the Amazon warehouses, etc. And the government responds to that by sending out a bunch of money, a.k.a. the STEMI and the child tax credit so that people can survive. And now you have all this money out there when a year later things start to open back up. And that money is just burning up a hole in folks' pockets. You're buying clothes. You're buying that car. You're buying that couch for your work from home. Never going back to the office, she said. But here's the thing. It is taking longer to get that couch because the supply chain is still not ready for this jelly. People want their stuff, but companies can't make it fast enough. So what happens to prices? They go up. Voila. Inflation. This morning, you heard that inflation is at a 40-year high, even though wages are up, job creation is at a 40-year high, and American consumers are turbocharging the economy. But here's a dirty little secret that companies do not want you to know. Some of them are taking advantage of the situation and charging you way more just because they can. If you watch our sister network, CNBC, you hear a lot of CEOs just crowing about their ability to raise prices. We're still chasing demand, so we haven't seen a lot of resistance to the price increases. And given the inflationary trends that we're seeing and what's happening to cost of goods, distribution and logistics costs, um, we, we will likely have to take more pricing in, in the year ahead. If you look at our performance last year, you saw a very, very strong performance on price mix, mostly driven by price. And that was really accentuated in the fourth quarter. The fact remains, even though we've taken some pricing to date, now, our chicken burrito is still, you know, less than $8 for most parts of the country. So we have more room to take price uh, as we need to. Obviously, we want to take our time on doing that. Now, just think about, think about that for a moment. These companies are charging you way more. And the CEOs and their fellow suits are conveniently blaming inflation. Why? Because the people these CEOs work for, no, 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 not the customers, not their workers, the shareholders, the shareholders, they love it. And they reward them for it. Take poor Hemplo, Mr. Berg from Levi's, who makes $10 million a year. Or Mr. Nichols from Chipotle, who took home $38 million. The bulk of that in incentives and an annual bonus just in 2020 alone. What better way 
to please your shareholders than jacking up your profit margins. Woo, money. And here's the thing. They're going to keep doing it because this is like a game of press your luck where prices will just keep going higher and higher and higher until the consumer says enough. With me now, Lindsay Owens, executive director of the Groundwork Collaborative. Thank you so much for being here. This is an example of I am somebody sends me something uh, on social media or I'm scrolling through social media and I see something. and I'm like, oh, my God, we've got to get this person on the show. That is literally what happened when I saw your tweet thread in which you demystified something that I have been wanting to talk about for quite a while. This inflation idea. Let's just put up some numbers. Here's the consumer price index before and after the pandemic. It was 2019, it was 2.5% going from 2019 to 2020. I mean, you know, the sort of average, sort of the price of things, right? It bumped way up to 7.5% now. That's a 40 year high. You write, um, that Kimberly Clark, for example, is a mega corporation manufacturing everything from paper towels to diapers. On its recent earnings call, CEO Mike Sue crowed to investors about multiple rounds of significant pricing actions and admitted he plans to continue doing it throughout the year. You do a lot of examples of that. Lots of folks don't go on those calls. You went on them. What did you hear? Yeah, that's exactly right, Joy. Uh, the inflation numbers today were not great. Um, they're up 7.5 over the year. It's making it harder for families to afford the cost of food, put groceries um, you know, in their grocery carts, and put gas in their cars. And there are a lot of different reasons for that. But one of them that we're not hearing enough about is just this bald-faced profiteering. My organization at the Groundwork Collaborative, we combed through hundreds of earnings call transcripts, hundreds from quarter four. And what we saw over and over again is that CEO after CEO is coming out and really just crowing about their pricing actions, how great pricing is going for them, how proud they are for their, of their teams, for their brilliant pricing actions. And what that means for these companies is record-breaking profits, not just increased profits, increased profit margins, right? And what they're telling their shareholders is, um, that's good news for us. It's good news for you. We're going to do buybacks. And oh, by the way, expect more um, because we're seeing how far we can push this. And so far, there hasn't been any blowback um, for a whole host of reasons because there's some demand. Also, in some cases, because these companies don't have any competition, right? Um, mm -hmm. There's really no competition to keep these prices in check. And so they're saying, expect this again next quarter. And we're really just getting started here. It's like a, whatever the market will bear, right? You, you talk about three, one of the things you talk about is 3M, right? For instance, they make N95 masks. So when the government says, take off that little hospital mask, get an N95, that's better. They go, oh, okay, we can tick, tick, tick that price of a 3M mask up. Y'all want them. And so we can, the, the market will bear us making, charging it more. Amazon says, oh, everybody's sitting home ordering stuff. Let's just make Amazon Prime cost more. You, you love Netflix. You want to watch it. You're sitting at home. Let's make that cost more. It's like they're pushing and pushing and pushing. And you may, you talk about um, the, the profit margin versus the profit. Talk to us about that. Like break that down for, for me in like regular for people English. Like what does that mean? And then secondly, isn't it true that these CEOs, the reason that they get away with it is that they are actually compensated in part in stock. So when they do stuff that juices the stock, they make more money. Yeah. So these CEOs um, are really responding to investors who are really demanding these types of price increases. Um, CEOs who follow through with those price increases and bring those larger profits home are being rewarded by shareholders. CEOs, by the way, who don't 
have been penalized. We saw uh, late last year some savage sell-offs for companies who said they weren't going to raise prices as high as they could have raised them. Um, and you're absolutely right. We're seeing a lot of this in the healthcare sector. You talked about 3M and the masks. Um, Johnson & Johnson's another one. We're on their quarterly earnings call. The CEO talked about the increased need for medical care and the suffering. And he said it presented an opportunity and made them very, quote, optimistic about the future. So we're seeing this, you know, in the pharmaceutical industry and in the healthcare sector during a global health pandemic, but we're also seeing it across the board with necessities. There are two companies that make diapers. There are four companies that pack meat. Um, there is not a lot of choice out there, and they're really seizing this moment and using the cover of inflation to drive prices as high as they can take them and to drive yep. those profit margins up. And they know that people are going to blame the guy we showed at the top. They're going to blame the president who has nothing to do with it. They're going to say, oh, no, no, this is just inflation. It's political when it's really them. And the profit margin for those who are listening, it's the difference between what it costs them to make the stuff and what they're getting from you when you buy it. And it's getting bigger. Uh, Lindsay Owens, thank you so much. We're going to definitely have you back because we want to talk more about this. Still ahead. President Biden issues a warning to Americans in Ukraine. That exclusive NBC News interview is coming up next. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. Russian President Vladimir Putin is continuing his chest thumping over Ukraine. Right now, massive military exercises are underway in Belarus near the border with Ukraine and at sea. Those drills are expected to involve tens of thousands of troops. With the major world powers all keeping a close eye on Ukraine, the ultimate question is, what is Putin's endgame? The Atlantic's Ann Applebaum describes Putin's actions as a Soviet-style attack on democracy that he hopes goes beyond the borders of Ukraine. Applebaum writes, he wants to put so much strain on Western and democratic institutions, especially the European Union and NATO, that they break up. He wants to keep dictators in power wherever he can, in Syria, Venezuela, and Iran. He wants to undermine America and shrink American influence to remove the power of the democracy rhetoric so that many people in his part of the world still associate with America, still associate with America. He wants America itself to fail. As Applebaum writes, just as the Soviet Union ultimately failed in asserting its Soviet dictatorship across the world, she believes Putin will also fail, but that he can do a lot of damage along the way. Joining me now is Ann Applebaum, staff writer for The Atlantic. And from Ukraine, Malcolm Nance. MSNBC counterterrorism and intelligence analyst and author of They Want to Kill Americans, the Militias, Terrorists and Deranged Ideology of the Trump Insurgency. Thank you both for being here. And, uh, you know, Anne, I want to start with you on this. Your, your piece is, is, is fascinating. I hope people 
Oh, I, we don't have Ann Applebaum yet. So let me just go to Malcolm first. Um, Malcolm, let me play President Biden. Um, this was an exclusive interview with NBC News tonight, and he was asked whether or not he would send U.S. troops to Ukraine. Take a look. What scenarios would you put American troops to rescue and get Americans out? There's not. That's a world war. When Americans and Russians start shooting at one another, we're in a very different world than we've ever been in. Not even on behalf of simply evacuating Americans? No. How, how, how do you do that? How do you even find them? This is not like I'm hoping that if, in fact, he's foolish enough to go in, he's smart enough not to, in fact, do anything that would negatively impact on American citizens. But have, you, have you told him that? Yes. You've, you've told him to, that, that you know, Americans would be a line that they can't cross? Well, I, I didn't have to tell him that. He, I've, I've spoken about that. He knows that. Malcolm, you are in Ukraine at this moment. First of all, uh, there is this, this sort of now call for everyone to get out of Ukraine. So you can let us know if and when you're planning on doing that. But what do you make of this, this sort of standoff um, between Putin and the West? Because on the one hand, it could, in theory, be sort of a Kim Jong-un. He's trying to get attention. OK, he's gotten attention. It's, he stands down. What is your read from there on the ground? Well, you know, I think Ann Applebaum's piece spells it out relatively simply. Vladimir Putin has strategic goals in which he doesn't feel Ukraine should even be an independent nation. It should be part of an oblast. It should be a part of Russia itself. and. The way that it feels here on the ground is that this is a Kim Jong-un move. He's putting enough resources on the ground uh, that has some depth to it, but not enough depth to take this entire country. Let's get a stipulate a few things that I think most Americans don't understand. This nation is huge. It's the size of Germany, Austria, and Switzerland laid sideways. It takes 12 to 15 hours to drive from west to east. Uh, they, the capital Kiev is three and a half million people. It's bigger than Chicago and it's huge. Uh, and they are fiercely independent. One other factor that's missing here, Joy, Ukraine has an army. I, I met with the, uh, commander of Ukrainian army the other day when we were down in Donbass at the battlefront and they are committed to fighting Russia and they're getting new weapons every day from the United States and NATO. But if Russia thinks they're just going to walk in here and jump into this city with airborne forces or commandos, they're talking essentially a war that will go for years and turn into insurgency. They'll never hold it. You know, and, 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 and Anne, we have you on the phone now, but let's talk a little bit about that. Right. Because, you know, it, it seems sort of like sort of almost like nationally suicidal, right, for Vladimir Putin to think that he can pull off with Ukraine with, the, with you know, what the old USSR couldn't do in Afghanistan. Right. It doesn't seem logical. But you write in your piece that it was fascinating. I hope people will read it. You know, this idea that you have this kleptocrat in Vladimir Putin. And the, the biggest threat to him is a successful Ukraine. Because if Ukraine became what it clearly seems to want to be, a sort of normal, modern, prosperous Western European nation, it would put the lie to the kleptocracy he's running at home, would expose him as the crook that he really is. So in your view, what is the sort of likelihood that he takes the risk of basically creating a morass for the Russian military and their economy by invading Ukraine? So first of all, you're absolutely right. Um, this is really much more ideological than most people seem to understand. 
um, Putin and, and the, his people around him have been putting forward all these arguments about NATO and they've been distracting and trying to pull in the United States. This is really about Putin feeling personally challenged by the democracy activism in Ukraine, by Ukraine's attempt to become independent, by its attempt to become a democracy integrated with the rest of Europe, because he knows that, if, as you say, and as I wrote, if they're successful, that's a huge challenge to him personally. It means that his autocracy, his kleptocracy um, is, can be challenged by Russians who might want who might want the same thing. Um, and therefore, that makes all the diplomacy around this a little bit strange. Um, because, the, he, you know, he's clearly testing the waters. He's clearly trying to see how much support Ukraine will get. Um, but really what we say isn't going to have in terms of, you know, what we what kind of negotiations we do won't have that much impact on whether he invades. What will matter is how much support, military support, he thinks Ukraine will get and how harsh he thinks the sanctions will be. In other words, this is something he definitely wants to do. He's wanted to do it for a long time. He's actually been talking about it for uh, more than a decade. Um, he, he judged that this was a good moment because of disarray inside the United States, because of COVID, um, because of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, but if, if he can be shown that the price is going to be much higher than he thinks, that there will be a military pushback, that the Ukrainian army is getting arms from outside, then that might put him on. It's one of those strange moments in which arming Ukraine and helping Ukraine defend itself might be the best path to peace. In other words, if we want peace in the region, then we might need to we might need to create some kind of deterrence in Ukraine. It's a, it's yeah. a, it sounds paradoxical, but but that's that's the answer. And very quickly before we go, Malcolm, is that the sense that you have on the ground, that people in Ukraine, are they preparing for war or do they think that in the end the price will prove to be too high for Putin to go through with it? There is there is no outside of the armed forces who are now doing counter exercises uh, in the regions where the Russians are. There is no preparation for war here. You know, most journalists are a little disappointed that they have they're not coming to Kabul. I've been to Sarajevo. I've been to a European city at war. This place is like going into Stuttgart. There are more Teslas and Mercedes Benzes than I can count here. But let me touch on Anne's last point, because yeah. I directly asked the commander of Russia's arm, of Ukraine's armed forces what they need. And I yeah. said, you know, they need more weapons. As many right. javelins as their soldiers can carry, that will yep. de de deter Russia. Yeah. We will have you back again. Ann Applebaum, Malcolm Nance, thank you both very much. I'm sorry we ran out of time, but thank you both. Um, before we go, a quick update on a story that we brought you last week from Missouri. The Republicans' Senate Bill 666, dubbed the Make a Murder Illegal Act, that would have shifted the burden of proof on claims of self-defense to prosecutors, has failed to pass out of committee. Good news. And up next, U.S. Senate candidate Gary Chambers releases another startling campaign ad. He joins me next. Stay with us. Fifteen years ago today, we saw the start of what seemed an impossible journey. Senator Barack Obama stood in front of the old Capitol in Springfield, Illinois, and announced his candidacy for president. In a tweet today, Obama acknowledged that it was a long shot. Historic, perhaps, but unlikely. It's easy to forget how improbable it was that a black man named Barack Hussein Obama could become president of the United States. But a year later, the game really changed with three words. It was a creed 
written into the founding documents that declare the destiny of a nation. Yes, we can. That unsolicited video was the original viral political video, garnering more than a million views in just two days. Even though Obama had lost the New Hampshire primary, the mashup of his speech that night ignited a younger generation of voters and created a pop culture phenomenon. Yes, We Can wasn't even the campaign slogan. The campaign slogan was change we can believe in. Well, today, a new generation of Democratic candidates are using that same viral spirit to ignite their own historic campaigns, like Dr. Chris Jones, an ordained minister and NASA physicist running to become the first black governor of Arkansas. Charles Booker running in Kentucky to try and unseat libertarian anti-Fauci Senator Rand Paul and former state Supreme Court Justice Sherry Beasley running to become the first black woman senator from North Carolina. And now Gary Chambers running for the Senate in Louisiana against the man nicknamed Foghorn Leghorn by his detractors, Senator John Neely Kennedy. Chambers broke the Internet with his first ad, a blunt, pun intended, statement about our broken marijuana laws. Chambers has brought the fire again, literally, taking on gerrymandering in his latest ad, Scars and Bars, and setting fire to a notorious Confederate symbol. Our system isn't broken. It's designed to do exactly what it's doing, which is producing measurable inequity. One in 13 black Americans are deprived of the right to vote. One in nine black Americans do not have health insurance. One in three black children live in poverty. It's time to burn what remains of the Confederacy down. I do believe the South will rise again, but this time it'll be on our terms. Well, I am joined now by Gary Chambers, Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate from Louisiana, uh, and the man responsible, I think, for the most interesting political ads, for sure, and impactful of this uh, campaign season. Okay, so we had you on when you did your first ad, which was 37 seconds long because you were highlighting the, you know, unfairness of marijuana laws and the disproportionate effect on uh, on Black Americans and on people of color. Explain this ad. You lit up the Confederate flag. Why? Well, one, thank you for having us again. But we lit the Confederate flag on fire uh, because we need to burn the remnants of the Confederacy from every piece of legislation uh, that it remains in in this country, that we are watching gerrymandering be attempted to happen, that the Supreme Court is levying its hand uh, in these uh, inequitable maps uh, that are produced by Alabama. Um, And this democracy is in trouble. And it is the rem- the remnants of the Confederacy that remain that uh, I believe have created this 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 atmosphere that we live in. And so if it takes us having a bold position uh, by doing so to captivate and bring people to the conversation, we're going to do that. And I'm, I'm humble that we would even be in the conversation with the Yes, We Can video, because as a young voter, it inspired me uh, and it gave me a window into politics. And so we're trying to reach people who are normally not. Uh, condition to care about what's happening in the political spectrum. Uh, and we believe that we're being effective in doing so. You know, and, and you know what I love about what you just said is that, you know, I think there is a sort of consultant tested way of running for office. You know, you find somebody who's a self-funder and then they do X and they do Y and they do all these things, which when you're talking about younger voters who grew up under Obama, they really expect more. Right. And the floor is higher because a black man named Barack Hussein Obama, like literally became president not once, but twice in this country. Right. He was reelected. And so, like, I feel like the, the frame has to be expanded. And what I like about what you're doing is you're expanding the frame. Uh, 
your ad, if people just take it as, oh, he's going and burning the Confederate flag, you would miss the beginning of your ad in which you teach. You teach some history and you talk about the Reconstruction period when a black man actually won statewide office and was re and refused to be seated. And the claim was, oh, it was voter fraud, which will sound familiar. Talk a little bit about that and about the situation in your state where there is a gerrymandering problem, uh, a gerrymandering sort of attempt that is not that dissimilar from what's happening in Alabama. So so let me say that we were very intentional with telling the story of PBS Pinchback because those who oppose critical race theory don't want you to know that he exists. Uh, those folks don't want you to know that there was a black man uh, that was elected and then that there were all these other black folks elected in Louisiana and that the image of these black elected officials was so jarring that it was another hundred years before Douglas Wilder becomes the next black governor in this country. And there have only been four black governors in the history of this nation. Uh, surely there are more brilliant black men and women that could have served in these offices, but America has not given them the opportunity to do so. And so we're going to put that on its face because it's not just about me. It's about Val Demings in Florida. It's about Mandela Barnes of Wisconsin. It's about Charles Booker in Kentucky and being able to say that there are qualified black people on the ballot this year that have done the things that are necessary to be vetted, that they are worthy of serving, and that we ought to do everything we can to build a momentum around them to win. And I'm going to tell you, Joy, uh, we have considered all of the options of what criticism can come from this if people think it's a gimmick, if people think it's a game. I live in a state that ranks 50th in the nation. How do I get the rest of the world to care about a place that they've decided to forget about? Everybody mm -hmm. loves to come to Louisiana to eat our gumbo and come to Mardi Gras and listen to our music. But do you care about the people who live down I-10 uh, in Cancer Alley that are living in a, a polluted environment and they can't even get a job at the plants that are near their homes? Do you care about the mothers uh, who are in uh, a condition where their children are going to fail in schools while they can't meet, make ends meet in their communities? And so I am going to captivate this nation all year long with stories that connect to people. And we will eventually connect that to uh, people who are serving life sentences in Angola for what amounts to simple possession of cannabis. And so when I talk these uh, policies and connect these visuals, it is, it is our way to try to weave a fabric to tell the story of Louisiana in a way that captivates your senses and hopefully motivates your heart to do something. Don't make me say amen because you're getting all the history in here. I mean, people don't understand these during Reconstruction. Some of the most successful Reconstruction uh, efforts took place in places like Mississippi and Louisiana. They were majority black. And people don't realize without the Great Migration, these were majority black states where you could elect a black man. It's not uh, a coincidence that it was states like Mississippi and Louisiana that could elect black statewide officials. You had that black and tan movement that also is not in the history books. People don't teach that. You are teaching it. Um, let's talk about your opponent, John Neely Kennedy. Uh, people may not know him other than, you know, he's got the little foghorn leghorn nickname because he's actually an affluent guy, as you discussed last time on, but he pretends to be something else. His latest statement when asked about the Supreme Court not nominees who are, it's going to be a black woman. He said, number one, I want a nominee who knows a law book from a J crew catalog. Uh, that is his statement. And apparently he thinks that populism is J crew, all cashmere all the time. Um, your thoughts on, on him and on how, what's your strategy to defeat him? He won last time pretty handily, um, when he was reelected, although your governor is a Democrat, he won by narrowly, but he won. So our strategy, number one, John Kennedy is an insult and a disgrace to the people of Louisiana. Uh, 
it was Connie who I caught shopping in a school board meeting while people were talking about changing the name of Lee High School. So I think he should look at the Republican Party for examples of people who aren't going to do their job uh, while they're on the job. We, we have more than competent, qualified black uh, jurists all over this country. Uh, a, a black woman served as the chief just served as the chief justice of the Louisiana Supreme Court, uh, Burnett Johnson. Um, for for years, uh, we have Judge Janice Clark who sued. Uh, look up Clark v. Edwards, a case that was a Supreme Court case that created all of the bl uh, black judicial seats that exist in Louisiana. Uh, and so John Kennedy spits on the legacy of these black women when he's made statement like statements like that. Uh, when we have these fine jurists from our state, and so uh, when I look at where we are with him. Uh, our strategy is to expose him for the fraud that he is uh, and to build the biggest grassroots movement to get the country to pay attention to Louisiana and to send a message to the Democratic Party that Louisiana is, is a state of four million people. Uh, Houston is almost the size of Louisiana. If the Democratic Party can't flip Louisiana, it needs to fold its tent up and close its doors because this is where you can win. It's the second yeah. blackest state in America. Uh, it is a place where, where victory can be won. But resources have to come with that. Expanding the aperture. I am all for that. Uh, and expanding the aperture of what we think of when we think about how politics should be should be played. Gary Chambers, thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you. Hopefully you will come back. Uh, and still ahead, despite what some Republican lawmakers are saying, no, 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 no. The Biden administration is, is not giving out crack pipes. We'll tell you what's really going on next. We'll be right back. Okay, how many of y'all remember the classic comedy Friday, co-starring the late great comedian Anthony A.J. Johnson, in which he plays Ezel, whose vice in 1990s Los Angeles is crack. Crack is whack. Well, there is a bizarre and viral new lie ripping through the interwebs right now, claiming that the, the Biden administration is supposedly spending 30 million of your tax dollars on crack pipes. Crack pipes. Come on now. Joe Biden. This Joe Biden. Dealing from 1600 PA? Y'all know that is absolutely not happening in all of America and God, right? But before you could say the shade room, which later posted a correction, this lie, which was launched on conservative sites, had spread all over the web and social media, including on sites frequented by black and younger readers. Huh, wonder why? Wonder what's behind a strategy associating Joe Biden with crack. Even Republican electeds like Marco Rubio joined it. Well, Please take a moment to call Uncle Roscoe or your ornery cousin to the screen for just a second, because these are the facts. There is a drug abuse and overdose crisis in America, and not just crack, also cocaine, heroin, meth, hey, rural America, and prescription drugs, too. Ever since the 1990s, the federal government has offered harm reduction tools to try to minimize the risks. That includes safe smoking kits, which contain materials to help prevent disease transmission. But the Biden version do not contain Crack pipes. Do not. Because that would be dumb. And probably illegal, too. The goal is to save lives, not get people to start using drugs. Now, be blessed and go back to reading Facebook and Instagram for fun and not the news. And that is tonight's readout.
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. 